of Luke, uh, with the Lord's help, rounding out chapter 1 today. We'll be reading chapter 1 of Luke, beginning in verse 57 through the end of the chapter, verse 80. This comprises both the narrative of the birth of John the Baptist and his naming, uh, and also the, uh, the song known as the Benedictus, uh, Zechariah's prophecy of who his son will be as a prophet who goes before the Lord. You can find our reading today on page 856 of our Bibles, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57, and reading to the end of the chapter in verse 80. Before we come to read God's word, please join me in prayer again. O great and gracious Lord, giver of all wisdom and all good gifts, we thank you for this gift, your word. We thank you for the truth which you have given us of Jesus Christ, the sunrise who has visited us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness. And we pray that you, by your Spirit, would give us hearts so that we may read and mark and learn and inwardly digest this word of truth which you have given to us. Make us your people steadfast in your word. For the sake of your name and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. They said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. They made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. One of uh, the primary mistakes that we make in our approach to God is to think far too little of him. This is a mistake that uh, is indicative not only of our humanity, but also of our sinfulness. We humans are finite creatures. By reason of strength, perhaps our years uh, may amount to 80, perhaps 90, but we spend all of those decades bound by time and space and our circumstance. And so we have a hard time conceptualizing the God who is fantastically unbound by such things. The God who is altogether infinite and eternal and unchangeable. The God whose power is immeasurable. And when you really sit down and begin to think about the fact that the Lord is so big and large, and I, I'm using the the common words that we can, and they, they don't even amount to, to begin to, uh, to give us categories to speak. When you begin to think about the fact that God is so large that there are no categories to adequately describe His immensity, it hurts your tiny, finite brain. And so we don't think about Him. We leave off the pursuit of this infinitely powerful God and we settle instead for something manageable. We end up exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We content ourselves with a deluded form of who God is, and we worship the creature rather than the creator. But that idolatry never helps us. In fact, it only leads to disappointment. Because as we turn, as we are disappointed by these minuscule versions of this God that we've created in our own image, we also become frustrated by our circumstances, thinking that God is just as bound by time and space and circumstance as we are. And it leads us to doubt and to sin and to disappointment, all because of this tendency to miniaturize the God of heaven and to think too little of him. Our passage today is a corrective to that tendency. Villagers Relatives and friends have gathered together to see something of the kindness of God, and they witness something that is more substantial than they ever could have expected. And they leave with a note of anticipation, wondering what they will see next. If God's hand has been so powerful in the birth of this little boy, what will the eternal God be able to accomplish through him as he grows? Zechariah, too, is is astounded by the power of the Lord. For nine months he has tasted and seen, though silently, he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. He is better than he imagined. He is more merciful than he accounted for, and he rejoices in what has been accomplished, but he looks forward to what is to come. With the Lord's help today, our study of this passage will be likewise expansive helping us to see and to rejoice in a mercy that is greater than we ever could have imagined. That is the watchword of the passage, by the way. It is mercy. It shows up three different places. We find it in verse 58. It says Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her. It shows up again in verse 72. All this has happened to show the mercy 
promise to our fathers, and it shows up for the last time in verse 78 because of the tender mercy of our God. And so today, in a sort of expansive way, we are going to think on five mercies of the Lord. And that, too, is expansive from my normal three, but it will be okay. Five mercies of the Lord. And and my prayer is that as we see them, we will be challenged and encouraged, just as Zechariah and these friends and relatives were, to think bigger thoughts of who God is and what he is capable in the lives of his people. Well, the first and most obvious mercy that we find in this passage is the mercy of fulfillment. An entire village is abuzz with excitement because nine months of pregnancy have come to completion. It tells us that the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, that God has been merciful to bring a son into this family that had no heir and, and had no hope. And now the, the most natural of, of occurrences has happened to the most unlikely of women. And there is this fulfillment and everyone rejoices, but there's a little irony here. Because as these friends and these, these relatives and these neighbors gather to rejoice in a fulfillment, they actually become part of a fulfillment. Although unbeknownst to them, do you remember the words of the angel Gabriel back in verses 13 and 14? In the same chapter, look at it. He says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now finally it's happening. First the son, the unexpected baby, now the prophetic name, and now the rejoicing and the wonder, and it's all happening the way that the angel has said. But there's a struggle here. In the midst of fulfillment, there is a struggle between the villagers and Zechariah and Elizabeth. Because their relatives want so much to give this boy a name that is expected. Something that is normal. Something that his friends can call him and everybody will know him by some familial name. And everybody will understand that he, oh, he must be Zechariah's boy. He's, he's called Junior. He's got something that relates to the normal course of human life. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are saying, no, you've got to look bigger than that got to go beyond what you're expecting for this child to be. And they're pressing them beyond their expectations to find a greater mercy that the Lord is fulfilling. And yes, the Lord has been merciful to Elizabeth. He has taken away her reproach among people. That's what she called it in chapter 1. But this taking away of a reproach, this mercy to Elizabeth, is just the beginning. It's just a signal of greater things to come. That's the theme of Zechariah's song. It, too, is revolving around fulfillment, that here comes John, but he's a prophet. He's simply the one to go before to prepare the people of the Lord for what the Lord is doing. He's not just fulfilling these nine months of pregnancy. He's not just bringing about his prophet, but he is bringing about all of his mercy, all of the things that he promised to David and to Abraham and to all of their fathers throughout all of the years. This is much bigger than anyone anticipated when they gathered for a circumcision ceremony. It is almost as though this passage unfolds. If you could think about opening those little wooden Russian dolls, but in reverse. If it were possible to start with the smallest one and to open it and to find that the next layer was actually bigger and more intricate and more beautiful than the one that you've gotten and you continue to go and they get bigger and things seem more wonderful the farther you go. 
Or perhaps this passage reads like some ancient artifact that's uncovered in some desert sand somewhere. And the archaeologists are excited and they begin to dig and the structure gets bigger and wider. And the farther they dig, the bigger it gets, and the bigger it gets, the farther they dig until they find out that they have unearthed and discovered, rediscovered the most magnificent pyramid ever built, but it's been forgotten for so long. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth are pushing these villagers to go deeper, see more of God's fulfillment. It's bigger. His mercy of fulfillment is, is bigger than you could imagine. See the foundation of his mercy that he is working all of his plans from before the foundations of the world were laid. He is doing all of these things. And don't think too small of God's mercy in the world. This is exactly the way that God's mercy of fulfillment happened in the lives of most believers as well. Take a brand new convert, someone who knows almost nothing of the grace and the doctrines of God, someone who is just reading their Bible for the first time, who has a friend at work and tells them about the gospel message of Jesus Christ and they are converted and the Lord gives them life and they begin by being overjoyed in what the Lord has done for them and in the individual life of a sinner. Well, that's a good place to start. And we never leave that. We, we, never, we never shrink beyond or, or, or out of the, this joy of personal redemption, but we grow in understanding what the Lord has done, because pretty soon you take that believer and you connect them to a church and they say, actually, I'm just part of something much bigger. I'm just one piece, one member of one larger body that the Lord is gathering together to himself, and his mercy is much bigger than I anticipated at the beginning. It's more glorious than just what he's doing for me in one, this one little place. And you keep digging, and the church keeps getting bigger. And you realize that God's covenant mercy and his fulfillment spans centuries and continents and covenants. You keep going and suddenly you realize that God's fulfillment, his salvation, isn't just about the individual. It's not even just about the congregation. It's not even just about the elect. It's about the Redeemer. It's about the foundation undergirding all of it, this uh, this plan that the Lord had that he put in place before the foundations of the world were laid to unite all things together in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And it's much bigger. And the further you go in your Christian life, the more you know about the mercy of God's fulfillment, the bigger it gets. And folks, what do you see with the saints gathered around the throne of God and the vision of revelation, but that they will rejoice to be in his presence and to know more of him and to sing more of him and to rejoice more in what he has done. This is the way the mercy of fulfillment works, that it just keeps getting bigger. And it's bigger than you might imagine. Now, the second mercy that we see in this passage, uh, the second mercy that we see is the mercy of affliction. Notice this change in Zechariah. How he moves, we were looking uh, several weeks ago in the beginning of this chapter, uh, and there he was in utter disbelief. It was different than the words of Mary. And the angel Gabriel came and said, this is going to happen. And his response was, how can I know this? How can I be sure that what you're telling me is true? And now he speaks in bold benediction, just nine months later, a dramatic change singing and prophesying and telling others about what the Lord has done, and you won't believe what's coming next, he tells them. And how does the Lord 
effects such a miraculous change, such a drastic change, in just a few months? The answer is affliction. In our, uh, our Sunday school, uh, downstairs, we, we've been uh, studying parenting, some of the younger families together in our church. And we've been talking an awful lot about the need uh, for parents to be able to teach their children and discipline their children in a way that gets to the heart of the child and not just to the surface level. But, you know, that's, uh, that's good advice, and it's an awful lot uh, harder to do than it is to talk about. The thing is that it's actually a lot easier to deal with the behavior. As a parent, to say, you know, this annoys me, you've got to stop it, and not to give uh, an understanding to the child, not to teach them, not to aim at the heart and what's happening beneath the surface. Or sometimes it's a lot easier just to ignore things, because real discipline takes time, and it's an inconvenience. And, and what happens if your children grow to resent you because you disciplined them so much? And in a lot of homes, children grow up between this sort of good cop, bad cop, this volley back and forth all the time, whether this, this harshness in discipline or this laxity in discipline, and they never know what their parent needs or wants or expects or values in the home, but the Lord's discipline is never so capricious. He is determined to get to the heart of his people. He is determined to grow them in perfect holiness, and he always does it with perfect wisdom. And very often that means just the right affliction for his people. Just the right trial to lay them low. Show them a greater need in their heart. Not to break them, not to crush them into the dirt, not to make them bitter, but to show them how much they are in need of the Lord. And that's what he's done in Zechariah. He's given him the mercy, the fatherly mercy of affliction. Zechariah has spent nine months in total silence. It says, obviously, that he couldn't speak, that he couldn't talk, but it seems in verse 61, his, his neighbors are making sign language to him. It seems that he couldn't hear either. He's been put on the sidelines, a silent spectator to what the Lord is doing in the world. He couldn't perform his job. He couldn't speak the benediction and, and intercede for the people as a priest. He went home and he sat with his wife, for nine months, and Mary came, and she spent three months there, and he could see the women gesturing and speaking and praising the Lord, and he couldn't hear a word of it. And the Lord removes him from the hustle of what's happening and the bustle of all of these things, and he's moved to the periphery. And in his affliction, he has seen that the Lord is continuing with his plans, whether Zechariah approves of it or not, whether he believes in it or not whether he's willing to get on board with it or not. Well, what's been happening in Zechariah's heart during these nine months? It's been made softer. It's been made warmer. It's been made more receptive to the grace of the Lord that was more wonderful than he could measure at the beginning. And finally, when he is involved in this discussion, when the villagers get tired of dealing with Elizabeth because she doesn't seem to want to go the way that everybody should be going, they turn uh, to Zechariah. And well, Zechariah speaks some sense into this situation, and he writes emphatically. The word order in the Greek actually is different. It says that he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, 
John, his name is. This is where we're starting. No waffling, no indecision, no wondering, no, no thinking, well, well maybe uh, it still has to, to be shown, to be proved. No, he is faithful to the Lord. And his faithfulness, his belief in what the Lord is doing has been wrought in his heart by affliction. Through nine months of silence, Zechariah learned to sing the psalm. Psalm 119, verse 71, tells us this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And for the people of God, that's how affliction works. I know sometimes it's hard to discern if things are difficult for you. Whether, whether you're dealing with some chastisement from the Lord, whether it's a fatherly discipline that you could trace back to some sin, and we don't always know that, and perhaps that's happening, or perhaps maybe whatever affliction you're going through right now, if you're afflicted, uh, is just a part of the soup of living in a world that is broken by sin. It's hard to discern those things, but one thing is constant. One thing is sure for the believer. That is that whatever affliction you are facing now comes to you from the loving fatherly hand of the merciful God who cares for you and directs your way, not so that you would grow in bitterness, not so that you would grow uh, in a seething anger and what he might be doing and how things haven't turned out the way that you wanted them. He is growing you to see what he is doing. He is laying his people low through the mercy of affliction. Because it is in that lowest vantage point that we can best see what the Lord is up to. And we are humbled before him. And the Lord is determined that his people should learn to sing the psalms with Zechariah. Determined that we should know the mercy of affliction. Now we have three more mercies. And they all come from the, the song of Zechariah beginning in verse 67. This really is the content of what Zechariah said. It tells us in verse 64 that immediately his mouth was open and his tongue was loose and he spoke, blessing God. Well, it's, it's uh, not a coincidence then that verse 68 begins with blessing to the Lord and blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people. That's the next mercy that we see here. Is the mercy of redemption. The Lord has visited and redeemed his people. Now, if you were a first century Jew, that kind of language would send chills down your spine. That would remind you of the God that you had read about and heard about. The God the priest talked about and their forefathers spoke of and taught their children in the home. The God who stepped down into Egypt to break the rod of the oppressor, to, to cancel slavery and to draw his people out to a place where they are safe and they are guarded and they are at peace with him. God who visits and redeems his people. The God who would come to usher in the golden age of Israel. And that's why it's so important that he goes on to mention David in verse 69. He has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's important because David was the king during that golden age. David was the king who reigned in Israel when Israel was at its safest and at its largest and at its most magnificent. David was this warrior king who subdued peoples and nations and expanded the borders of the people of Israel and gave them peace through warfare. And the Lord came and spoke promise to David 
He was using him to prosper his people. He was the king after his own heart. And so what happens is that David hands over this kingdom that is established in peace, free from enemies to his son Solomon, and then begins the downward spiral. Then begins the idolatry. Then begins the oppression all over again. Then begins the separation of the people and the fracturing of relationships and the exile and the oppression and the slavery. And for centuries, all of God's faithful have been longing for nothing more than the redemption and the revival of salvation among his people. They're longing for oppression to be banished. And at the coming of John, with the impending birth of Jesus, Zechariah is speaking as though all these hopes of redemption have already been accomplished. Do you notice the tense of the verb? He has visited. He has redeemed. He has raised up. It's as good as done, says Zechariah. Now I know the tendency. We want to take all of this language, those who hate us and enemies and Davidic redemption and all of this stuff, we want to spiritualize it. We want to chastise the Jews for thinking for for some instance, that Jesus would come and banish the Romans. And and we want to say that's not what Jesus was about. His kingdom is not of this earth. And we want to remind them that he came to give peace, not in a worldly sense. He even said that we'll have tribulations, and you ought not to expect those things. But he does give peace with God. He himself is our peace, and he came to banish the enemies of sin and hell and death forever. And we want to spiritualize all of this. And that's well and good. But in your spiritualizing of these promises, do not make too little of God's mercy. Don't sell God and his redemption short. Don't think that it's only spiritual and nothing more. If the Jews were wrong to think that Jesus came to banish the Romans, their mistake was only in thinking too small of what he had come to do. What did we confess together today? We confess that Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. We confess that Jesus has come in the flesh and in the spirit. We confess that Jesus Christ is the king of the physical realm as well as the spiritual realm. And yes, his kingdom is not of this earth. He has not come to establish a Christian nation. But he has come and vanquish sin and Satan and death in order that one day all of his people may be really and literally and physically free from all of their enemies. Free from oppression at the hands of Rome or North Korea or Nepal. Free from the threat of violence at the hands of ISIS. Free from American pluralism and materialism. Free from every enemy arrayed against the bride of Christ. Don't sell the mercy of redemption short. Jesus Christ is still the conquering king who hears the prayers of his people as they pray to him, How long, O Lord? Do you know how he answers that prayer? Well, he's already answered it. And it shows up in language that is strikingly similar to what Uh, Zechariah uses here. It shows up in Isaiah chapter 9. You can read it beginning in verse 3. He says, You have multiplied the nation. 
you have increased its joy. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. And because Christ has come, because this son has been given, because he is coming again. The mercy of redemption is as good as done. Now, all of this redemption has a purpose, and that brings us to our fourth point. That the Lord is working the mercy of service. The mercy of service. We've seen the mercy of fulfillment and affliction Redemption and now service. Notice that Zechariah, as he sings this song, is moving backwards. We might expect him chronologically to begin with Abraham and move on to David, but that's not what he does. He's, he's stepping back. Remember, he's digging down. He's exposing the foundations little by little, expanding our vision of what the Lord is doing in mercy and salvation. And so he goes all the way back in verse 73 to the father of all of the faithful. What does he say? The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now you might wonder, if you've read your Old Testament, you might wonder which oath are we talking about here? Because God makes several promises to Abraham, and they're all different parts of the, the one covenant that the Lord made with him, but it shows up in, in Genesis chapter 12, and Genesis chapter 15, and Genesis chapter 17, and Genesis chapter 22. And so which oath are we talking about here? Well, a good case, I think, ought to be made for the fact that in the context of this passage, as they're gathered together for the circumcision rite of his son, John, that he really has in mind uh, Genesis chapter 17, that that's the most appropriate one, where we find that covenant of circumcision. Now, of course, every Presbyterian worthy of a catechism knows all about the grace of the covenant of circumcision. In Genesis chapter 17, you're familiar with the Lord's promises to Abraham uh, to multiply him, yes, and to give him uh, the land, yes, but also the, the promise that he will be his God, will be the God of his children forever, that he promises to enter into a relationship with them and call them his own, and you're familiar with that promise. But perhaps you've forgotten the requirements for that covenant. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. And we're marching toward when the Lord is, is speaking to his people and he's saying, I'm going to be God to you and to your children forever. But here's how Genesis chapter 17 begins. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me. And be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. What does God want 
in his covenant people. He wants blamelessness. He requires full and perfect personal obedience. He wants them to walk with him in holiness and righteousness all of their days. That's how Zechariah put it. He wants blamelessness. He wants them to offer spiritual sacrifices from a pure heart and clean hands. He wants them to labor in love to worship the Lord God and him only with all of their mind and heart and soul and strength. The Lord requires perfect obedience. His covenant blessings require unstained service. And how does Abraham respond to this requirement? Keep reading. Verse 3. Then Abraham, Abram fell on his face. In humble silence, he demonstrated that he was not able to take that first blameless step before the Lord. If the Lord is going to make a covenant, if the requirement is blamelessness, then he's going to have to count Abram out. Oh Lord, you remember Egypt and, and Abimelech and multiple wives and all that stuff with Hagar. You remember all of these things that are happening, and he's undone. The Lord says, walk before me and be blameless, and Abram falls on his face. He trembles before the God of perfect holiness. Keep reading. Verse 3. And God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you. Do you understand what's happening here? It's no wonder that Paul in Galatians tells us that before time, before Christ came, God was speaking the gospel to Abram. In the covenant promises that he made, he was speaking gospel mercy to Abram. God's covenant requires blameless obedience. And when Abram silently demonstrates his inability to produce what the Lord requires, the Lord says, I'll take care of it. My covenant is with you. Regardless of your lack of blamelessness, and he's able to do this because he knows that in time, one will come from Abram's loins who will be perfect, who will offer perfect obedience on behalf of his people, despite Abram's covenant failure. There will be a spotless lamb to render full and perfect obedience without defect. And on the basis of that one's service, God makes his covenant with Abram. To be his God and his people's God forever. To bless him and to make him a blessing. To make him walk in newness of life. And now, as Zechariah is circumcising his son, as he is giving him that same sign, that same oath that the Lord has called for blameless service in all of his people, he's rejoicing because there is one who is coming to work mercy for his people, to allow them that oath that he spoke, that being freed from all of our enemies, we should serve him in holiness and in blamelessness and in righteousness all of our days. This is a gospel promise. This is not just our service, but this is Christ's service on our behalf. And as we follow him and as he gives his spirit to his people, he actually works his service in us. You know the joy of, of reading 
Romans chapter 6. It says that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, have been set free from sin to become slaves of righteousness. Do you know what that feels like? To grow more and more in service to him day by day, to have only waning desires for those sins that you once cherished. It's not something that you can work for yourself. It's not a blamelessness that comes as you pull hard on your bootstraps. It's Christ's service and his spotlessness for us. It's mercy as he works through us. And we now come to our last point. We've seen the mercy of fulfillment and affliction, of redemption and of service. Yet for the heart of every believer, there is something that is much greater and much more glorious than all of them. And that is the mercy of forgiveness. I wonder if by the time he got to the end of his song, Zechariah was getting breathless. He's an older man. It's been an exciting day. He's so excited that he's been speaking about the grace of salvation so much that he's forgotten the question that got this all started. Take a look at verse 66 in our text. All who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? And it's not until verse uh, 76. Oh yes, and you child. And speaking about God's mercy and redemption so much, I, I forgot. This, this is a joyous day. The Lord has fulfilled and brought forth a son. Oh yes, you child, you will be a prophet. You'll be the preparer. You'll go before the Lord to be the one who brings the message of salvation, and this will be your script. There is forgiveness to be found in Jesus. That's the content of his message. You will give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, and this too is the tender mercy of our God. There's mercy. There is pardon. There is forgiveness. In the Son. And Zechariah uses language of the Old Testament to describe what this forgiveness feels like. But if you've experienced it, you know the descriptions fall far short. What does forgiveness feel like for God's people? Well, it's, it's sunshine at the end of a troubled night, he says. It's breath and it's health for a dying man. It is peace at the end of the longest war. It's freedom. Fellowship, and it is joy in Christ. And the longer you experience it, the deeper you dig into it, the further you walk in it, the bigger it gets. This mercy of forgiveness that the Lord should come and not think it robbery to be counted equal with God, but to take upon himself the form of the lowest of servants, the one who washed the feet of his disciples, the one who came and girded himself as a servant and loved his people to the end, and even went to death on a cross on their behalf. Why? That he should bear the sin that was theirs alone. And there is mercy, and there is forgiveness, because the Lord has crushed his only son, and sent him to be the Redeemer, the perfect and obedient one, the afflicted one, the fulfillment of all of his promises through all of creation, to unite all things together in heaven and on earth under him. And the further you go, the bigger it gets. But there is forgiveness in Jesus to those who turn to him in faith and repentance. 
I hope that today you can learn to sing the song of Zechariah. That the Lord will allow you as well to rejoice in this mercy that is bigger than you can imagine. Please join me in prayer. O great and gracious Lord, we thank you for the gospel. The message that you accept us as your sons and make us heirs together with Christ, though we have done nothing to deserve it, though we have no blamelessness of our own. You change our hearts and transform them by the power of your Spirit and by the merits of Christ our Savior so that we would walk with you in blamelessness and in peace. We should be your children and recipients of your mercy. O oh Lord, our hearts can scarcely contain the thought. We pray that you would help us more and more to grow into rejoicing in these things. Teach us to think more highly of you and of your promises and of your mercy, we pray in Jesus' name.